Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 106 of the New Ice City podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercogliano of the USA Today Network, and you just heard our latest intro track, which comes to you from Ian O'Neill. Ian, I think, did an awesome job on that one. A long list now of what I think have been really good options for us to consider moving forward, and I really appreciate Ian taking the time to do that. He strikes me as a perfectionist, folks, because he sent me an original track. I told him I wanted to use it, and then he asked me if I can give him a little more time because he wanted to clean a few things up and send me back that updated version, which, again, to me, was a really cool one. So, Ian, thank you for putting in that extra time. It was unnecessary, but it is very much appreciated, and we will definitely have you in the mix moving forward. Now, this week's guest on the podcast, before I forget to get to it, is going to be Shana Goldman of The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast. You guys have heard Shana on here before. We had her on at the very beginning of the season, 10 games in, to discuss what we were seeing, some of the early trends or the small sample size trends from the Rangers. And now I want to have her back now that the season is almost over to look back and assess what we've seen. We talk about a lot of different things, the Norris Trophy race, the playoff race, playoff matchups, all kinds of stuff. So we'll get to that chat with Shayna in just a little bit. Now, before we dive too deep into the hockey stuff, I do want to start with this first and foremost, and that is a very wholehearted and big thank you to all of the listeners, all of the readers, all of the people who follow my work for all of the love and support that we felt, me and my family, from all of you guys in the last couple of weeks. As I tweeted out last week, after, and I know I had mentioned this on the podcast a month or so ago, after what had been a long battle, my grandfather finally succumbed last week. It actually happened the day while I was in Carolina, while the Rangers were playing the Hurricanes. My grandfather, my papa, as we lovingly call him, finally passed away. I had mentioned to you guys I think it was about a month ago or so now when they had moved him into hospice care and the doctors were giving him very little time. They didn't think he was going to make it past that initial weekend, which is actually the weekend of the Patrick Kane debut. Obviously, he made it quite a bit further than that. I think they underestimated how strong the old bull is. But his time finally came. It's been a very sad and difficult time for my family. Obviously, 90 years having him for that long is a blessing, and we're all very thankful for that. And We've been able to reminisce and think about his remarkable life and think about the influence that he had. He had six children, 
20 grandchildren. I'm one of those 20 and eight great grandchildren. So that's still growing. So what a legacy for him to leave. It's not like it came completely out of nowhere. We obviously knew that this was coming, but he's been such a pillar for our family that it's been sad, of course. And going to my grandmother's house as often as I can these last couple of weeks to try to support her and be there for her. Very weird walking in there without him. And I'm trying to help out as much as I can as she transitions and as we try to cope as a family, knowing that in a couple of weeks, once the playoffs start, I'm going to be locked and loaded and have very limited free time. So I appreciate your understanding for me being absent for quite a few days recently and in the next couple of weeks, might have a few days here and there where I might not do a story on a particular day just up until we get to the playoffs because, as I said, family is super important to me and I want to be there for everybody as much as as I can be. And again, the outpouring from the listeners and the readers and the Twitter followers and all that kind of stuff and, and people around the league and, and fellow reporters, it's been really, really touching and I really appreciate it. It's, it's nice to know that when a moment comes when you guys know how seriously I take my job and how much I pour myself into it and how hard I try to work and, and grind and produce as much content for you as I can. But when the time comes where bigger things are going on and you need to take a step back, it's really nice to know that people are understanding of that and that you have people's support. And, and I can't tell you how much that was appreciated in these last 10 days or so. So we skipped last week's episode for that reason had the funeral and everything last week and just probably was not in the right headspace to do a podcast, but I'm back this week and I am pretty juiced up. I am pretty happy to be back. I returned for the game in New Jersey last week against the Devils, sort of a welcome distraction. I was at that point, I think, ready to get back to work. The game was hyped up and billed as, as a huge game for the Rangers, really the last big game of the regular season for them because at the time they were sitting two points back of the Devils for second place in the Metro division. Had they won that game, they would have tied them and it would have made things interesting down the stretch as far as home ice advantage in that particular series is concerned. They still maybe would have had an outside shot at first place. I guess mathematically they do, but it does seem that the expectation is the Rangers will finish third in all likelihood. Again, it could change, but I think that they're content in the position where they am. That's just my read on the situation right now. You've heard Gerard Gallant say it repeatedly that he doesn't look at home ice advantage as a huge thing. He's pointed out, yes, we won game seven in our building against Pittsburgh last year, but we also won game seven in Carolina's building last year. So, I don't think that that's the type of thing where the Rangers are going to overexert themselves to try to make second place happen as opposed to third place. And you factor in the limited travel that it takes for them to get to Jersey and not having to stay in hotels necessarily during that series. And it becomes even less, I think, of a home ice advantage, especially on top of that, how many Rangers fans you're used to seeing in the Prudential Center when the Rangers do play in Newark. So... Again, the home ice thing as far as that series is concerned or that potential series is concerned, I don't think is a huge deal. And and honestly, you kind of saw that play out on the ice because going into that game, Gerard Gallant was making comments along the lines of what I'm saying, whereas the Devils, and I did sit in on one of Lindy Ruff's press conferences uh, right after the game, 
He said that that was the biggest game that a lot of his young players had ever played in. So the Devils seemed to be putting a lot of their eggs into that basket and really wanted to show up and prove that they're ready for this moment, whereas the Rangers just look like a team that's more gearing up for the playoffs and not overly concerned about exactly where they finish in the standings. So what we saw was a first period in that game that was dominated by the Devils. The Rangers got a little bit better as the game went on, which has been their habit. That's kind of what we've come to expect, or at least what we saw in five or six games in a row pretty much where they started slow, but they found a way to keep it close and in some cases come back and win those games. They weren't able to do that against the Devils. They end up losing that game two to one. And then they move on from that game and they have an even bigger letdown in Buffalo on Friday night. It was kind of predictable. Obviously, it was hyped up as a big game against the Devils, and they lost that game, so they lost a little ground in the standings, and now you're looking at the end of the season and really what amounts to a handful of games that don't mean all that much. So I didn't think it was a huge surprise that they lost to the Sabres in overtime on Friday, but Gerard Gallant clearly wanted to nip it in the bud at that point because we had seen over the course of five or six games in a row, excluding that win against Columbus, where the Rangers really started poorly and were falling victim to some pretty ugly first periods where the ice was totally tilted against them. You look at the Devils or you look at the Sabres in those two games, it felt like they had possession of the puck for almost those full 20 minutes in the first period, and the Rangers just took too long to wake up. Gerard Glant came out after that loss in Buffalo, called it a joke, and said flat out, that his team was acting like they had nothing to prove or nothing to play for since they clinched. He he basically told you that he thought that they had taken their foot off the gas pedal after they clinched and were kind of coasting, and he took issue with that quite clearly. And to his credit, he's picked his spots in his tenure when he decides to do that, when he calls them out. He doesn't do it too often, but there's, at least to my recollection, three or four, maybe five times in each of his first two seasons where he's made a point of questioning their effort and sort of having a gut check moment. And most of the time, the Rangers respond pretty well, and they did that on Sunday in their most recent game when they beat the Washington Capitals by a score of 5-2. to That was the most convincing win the Rangers had had in a while. I guess you could lump it in there with that win that I referenced against the Blue Jackets, but the Capitals are a better team than the Blue Jackets, a team that has given the Rangers problems in the past. And the Rangers came out, I thought they had a really good first period. I thought they played a really solid overall game. And, of course, the highlight that you have to underline from that game is the continued hot play of the kid line. They have really been the story for the Rangers in several of their recent wins. They've been, I think it's hard to argue, the best line for this team in the last nine or 10 games. I went and looked at some of the underlying numbers for a story that I wrote on Monday. If you look back at the last nine games, not only are each of those guys, Lafreniere, Hedl, and Kako, at nearly a point per game, in some cases a little more, in some cases a little bit less. But they've outscored their opponents 8-1 to one in those last nine games, and the scoring chances are like double in their favor. And if you take away that game in Jersey, which was the one game where our, the kid line was not very good, 
it's like 62 to 22 in the other eight games that they've played in the last couple of weeks. So the kid line has been outstanding. They just look like they're flying. They're playing really fast. They're getting, I don't know how many per game, but it seems like quite a few of these long possessions that they've kind of come to be known for where they're cycling pucks and they're working low to high and they're getting much better at getting to the front of the net and causing havoc in those situations. But then you're also seeing plays where that skill really pops. Of course, the play that comes to everybody's mind first and foremost is that goal that Alexi Lafreniere scored Sunday in D.C., where he comes in and looks like he's getting ready to shoot with the forehand, but then in one fluid motion puts the puck between his legs and extends his arms for a long backhand and basically gives the goalie no shot. I was asking him about that after practice today on Tuesday. Like, is that something you work on? Is that something that you think about at all within the course of the game? He said, no, it's all instinct, but he does recognize that when he has the space to do it, that it's a really tough save for the goalie to make because in one fluid motion, you're forcing him to go from one end of the crease all the way to the other. He's expecting a forehand on one side and he's getting a backhand all the way on the other side. So Alexi definitely smiled a little bit when we were having that conversation. And you've seen Heedle make some of these pretty plays and use that speed when he picks up speed through the neutral zone. I don't know how many guys there are around the league, certainly not many guys on the Rangers that are as fast and effective and skilled in those situations. And Kako has just been such a beast, especially down low, where he's able to protect pucks and fight through traffic and either find teammates or get himself into good scoring positions. He has, I think it's four goals in his last seven games. He's now up to a career high with 16 goals this season, it looks like all three of those guys are going to be over 40 points this year. Maybe not the high, high point totals that you were hoping for when the season began with those guys, but if all three of them end up over 40 points for the season, that's a pretty solid step in the right direction, a pretty solid step for their development. And the other thing that always stands out to me when I feel like they're really going good, which it seems to be very noticeable recently, and we've talked about this before, is the way that they forecheck and hound pucks and make it difficult on the opponent to advance and create turnovers. They're really active in those situations recently, and that leads to more possession time, which then leads to more offense for them. So it all kind of feeds itself and... Those guys have just been really, really good recently, sort of tone setters for the Rangers. And what I thought was really interesting that came out of our post-practice conversation with Gerard Gallant on Tuesday is that he said that before practice, you know, they have these video sessions all the time, that he chose to show clips of the kid line and all the things that he feels like they've been doing well in recent games as an example for the rest of the team to follow. So that has to send a heck of a message to the kids because they're in a locker room with Patrick Kane and Artemi Panarin and Mika Zibanejad and all these established stars. And yet they're being shown to all those guys as, Hey, this is the way I want you all to play. So that has to really fuel their confidence and make them feel good about themselves. 
But on the same token, it also sends a message to the veterans like, hey, you see how hard these kids are working? Well, that's what I want from you guys. And, and Gerard Gallant talked about the simple things was the focus of that message. The way that they're cycling pucks, and he talked about going low to high and creating offense that way. The way that they're getting to the net front and hunting for tips and rebounds. The way that they're managing the puck and avoiding risky cross-ice passes and, and bad decisions that might lead to turnovers. They're protecting the puck and therefore limiting the opportunities for the other teams. Those are the simple messages that you're going to hear him talk about. And the other one that we always hear him mention is shooting, shooting, shooting. He wants more volume from the Rangers in terms of their shot selection. The kids are doing those things right now. And and that is a pretty consistent message from Gerard Gallant. And I think he used the kids as a way to say to the veterans, I want you guys to do more of this stuff. So that was an interesting tidbit for sure that I took away from that conversation with the coach. Now, As far as the overall state of the team and prior to that game on Sunday, there did seem to be, at least in some corners of the fandom, some concern about the slow starts and the the general lack of a 60-minute effort and the way that the team seemed to not really be clicking on all cylinders. The truth for me, and I wrote about this a bit over the weekend after that game in Buffalo, is that I find it kind of difficult to get too worked up about that because to me it's it's not only predictable but also kind of understandable that the team is looking ahead. Again, they went through this grueling playoff run last year where they had 20 games in 40 nights and were tired and run down by the end of it, but it also made them hungry to go on another run this year. And it feels like this whole season has been building toward this playoff run. There are such high expectations for this team that to sort of save your bullets and maybe not want to overexert yourself, maybe be thinking about what's to come, I don't think it's that out of line or that crazy to imagine that 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 could be going on for some of these players. They might not want to openly admit it, although some guys have certainly hinted at it, but... I don't think it's that big of a deal whether they win or lose these last five games. You want to feel pretty good about the way that you're playing. You better be able to flip that switch if you're going to coast it a little bit in these last couple weeks. But they showed us in D.C. that it looks like they can flip that switch when they need to. So to me... I'm not going to get too worked up if there are stretches within a game where it looks like they're not necessarily playing their best or maybe a guy isn't throwing himself into a situation where he might block a shot or take a hit or do something that puts his body on the line with the playoffs so close. You know, there has to be some consideration for that human element where it's a huge playoff run coming up for these guys. There's a lot of pressure on them right now, and they certainly don't want to be hurt. They certainly don't want to be tired. And sometimes these games might feel like a little bit of going through the motions for them. I I don't think that that is something that should come as a huge surprise or something that we take big issue with. As long as they are working on the things that they need to work on 
and they're able to ramp up that intensity and play the way they need to play once the playoffs start. I wrote about this on Monday. To me, there are priorities in these last five games. It's not like these last five games are complete throwaways, but again, they go beyond wins and losses. You want to be sharp, especially when it comes to integrating some of the guys you got at the trade deadline. You want to make sure that the chemistry is where you hope it will be. And obviously, we've seen some line tinkering in the top six recently. I think we're going to talk about that a little bit more in the later portion of the show, but that's going to be an important part of it. Getting the power play clicking the way that you'd like it to to be. Getting the defensive pairs back in order, which is something I'm going to touch on in a couple minutes here. Keeping Igor Shesterkin sharp. I'm curious how many starts they're going to give him in these last five games. I think it'll be at least three, but it might even be four because if you look at that last week of the season, they only have two games and they're spread out. So it's not like you're asking him to play every other day if he does end up starting, let's say, maybe four of these last five games. So that's all, I think, important stuff. Staying healthy is is vitally important, obviously. And and speaking of health, I think the last thing I want to touch on before we get to our interview with Shayna here is that it does, and the disclaimer is we've said this before, but right now, based on what we heard at practice today, it does sound like Ryan Lindgren will play Wednesday against the Tampa Bay Lightning. I think it's 17 of the last 18 games now that he's missed. Obviously, he re-aggravated that injury when he came back and played against Carolina. I think it was on March 21st. So the Rangers decided to pump the brakes and I think wisely said, okay, we're not going to play you for a while. We want to do everything we can to make sure this injury is as healed as it can possibly be. It sounds like it's something that they're going to have to monitor and could linger, but they decide to give him a little extra time off. Honestly, I thought they might wait until the weekend because they have back-to-back games Wednesday and Thursday, and playing him in back-to-backs feels a little bit risky. So I thought that maybe they would wait until Saturday and then let him play in the final three games. But Gerard Gallant said that the plan is to play him Wednesday against Tampa, So we'll see how he looks, and obviously getting him back and making sure he's healthy is way, way high on the priority list for the Rangers. So that's something that we'll definitely be keeping an eye on, not only on Wednesday, but in all the games moving forward. How does Ryan Lindgren look? How is he managing the pain with this injury, which we all believe is some kind of a left shoulder injury, and can they keep him right heading into the playoffs? I think not letting him play at all, you could have gone that route if you wanted to be extra overly cautious, but it's also a lot to ask of a guy to go basically two months without playing and then go right into the fire of the playoffs. I think ideally you'd like him to get a few games. They could always decide after Wednesday, maybe they don't play him Thursday or maybe they pick another game where he rests in the next two weeks. But I think getting him a few games is important. I know he wants that. You know what kind of competitor he is. So Lindgren coming back and getting reintegrated into the lineup is definitely a key thing for the Rangers in these last five games. All right. With that, we're going to move on and get to our interview with Shayna. And once we're done with that, I will return to answer a few of this week's Twitter questions. 
Now let's welcome back into the show one of our favorite guests to dive into the stats with. Of course, that would be Shayna Goldman of The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast and, and several other places as far as I know. Probably too many to name, but Shayna, how are you doing? Thank you for joining us once again. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. How are you? Doing good. We were just saying it's kind of like the calm before the storm right now. So we're all gearing up for the playoffs, but right now trying to take advantage of maybe story ideas that we have that we won't be able to work on in a couple of years or maybe a little rest and relaxation. Even that still feels kind of hard to come by, but this is getting to be an exciting time of year. And I want to ask you about all kinds of stuff with the Rangers, maybe get into the playoff picture a little bit as well. But where I want to start, because I was looking through some of your recent content and I saw that you wrote about the Norris trophy race. And of course, Adam Fox, a lot of people expect him to be in that conversation. I think there was a period where maybe he was the front runner and that might have tailed off a little bit, at least in my opinion, in recent weeks. But I'm curious to get your perspective. How do you size up the Norris Trophy race and, and where Fox stands in that right now? The Norris Trophy race is always one of the most interesting because it all depends on how you view the award. Is it the top five scoring defenseman and now you're going, which one's the most defensive? Is it the most valuable defenseman to your team, which... I mean, that that feels like a heart trophy for defense. So, you know, there's some opinions on that. It's some feel it's the best defensive defenseman. Some feel it has to be the best all-around defenseman. So this year it gets, you know, even more interesting because you have what Eric Carlson's doing. Like, how can you look anywhere else when you have a defenseman who's on pace to score 103 points, which hasn't been done in over 20 years? It's almost 30 years, I think it is. Um, so how do you kind of deal with that and then manage the fact that his defense isn't great? It's really similar to the Roman Yossi debate of last year, but he's even better than Yossi offensively and he's on a much worse team and then you have the whole question of can someone be in the Norris trophy conversation if they're you know on a basement dwelling team so if you try to like figure out everything and interpret the award in your own way for me it's the best two-way defenseman it doesn't matter if they're the highest scoring defenseman it doesn't matter if they're on the world's worst team as long as in their minutes they are the driver so right now my number one, honestly, is Kale McCarr, who would be who'd miss 15 games. I think if he misses any more time, it kind of takes him out of it. But 15 games, I think we can kind of reason with a bit because what he's doing in his minutes is the best. But besides McCarr, I would say the next three are probably Hampus Lindholm, Adam Fox, and Eric Carlson. And Carlson is for all those flashy offensive reasons and his play driving ability and what he's doing in his minutes. But Adam Fox is probably the most well-rounded of the bunch. But then you could look at it and go, but he's not the number one in almost any category except for, you know, offensive impact relative to his teammates. So is that enough? Is it that he's the most balanced? Like, it's a really tough one, but I think he should finish top three. Yeah, I, I definitely see him as top three. I haven't put too much thought into my ballot recently. It, it does seem like especially post all-star break and even more noticeably, I think in the absence of Ryan Lindgren, like I wrote about this yesterday, his expected goal percentage with Lindgren is like over 56%. But in the last 18 games, 17 of which Lindgren hasn't played and he's mostly played with Nico Mikola, he's like a 44%. So that dip, I think, in recent weeks has maybe hurt him. I mean, I don't know. Did you look at him as the front runner early in the year? Because the first half, I thought he was outstanding for the most part. I think the first half of the year, it would have been Eric Carlson. And then yeah, Carlson's, yeah. yeah, the defense really faded as the team sold players away and they didn't have Timo Meyer. And like, on the one hand, you go, but he's doing legitimately everything by himself now. And it's still so impressive. But I think the way the defense is sliding, it's kind of working against him. 
So I think Fox has kind of been creeping around that two or three spot all season. And I wonder like where he actual actually lands at the end of the day. Um, you're going to have, you know, some people are going to want to see someone like Mira Heisken in it. And Quinn Hughes is someone that, you know, everyone wants to see. And I don't think either of them are there yet in that top cat category. But if Rasmus like, Dahlin, does he rank up there for you? He did. He really yeah. did. And then after that last injury, he just completely fell off and the defense has been really tough. So I feel like he should have been that top. It should have been Carlson Fox and Dahlin. I think that was the top three most people had with like Josh Morrissey and Dougie Hamilton as like the four and five. And it feels like you could see that second half really crushing players like Dahlin and Morrissey. So now that's better for Fox and it's going to be better for someone like Lindholm, who I don't think ever gets the credit that he actually deserves. And, you know, not being the mainstay power play one quarterback probably has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's funny, though, because it seems like when he plays, it's hard to argue against Kale McCarr as the best defenseman in the league, right? Right. He he redefines the position, right? And, you know, him and Fox, I think, are redefining the award, the fact that the two of them won the last couple of years. And it's not just because they were the highest scoring defenseman. It was they were the best all around defenseman in today's game. They were the best possession based defenseman. And, you know, their shot limitation numbers were some of the best. Even though they're not blocking shots, they're just playing so proactively. So I think it's pushing us to think about defense differently, which is what we all want to do. Now we just need some better metrics to support it because what we have is all, you know, a proxy for this, a proxy for that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right, let's dive into some Rangers stuff now. I think the last time I had you on, it was 10 games into the season and we were kind of talking about, okay, small sample size. Where do the Rangers stand at this early juncture? Well, now we've only got five games left in the season, so we have plenty of sample size to look at. I want to get into some specifics with you, but let's start kind of generally. If you were going to explain what you've seen from the Rangers this year, you know, maybe using some of the analytics that I know you like to dive into, strengths, weaknesses, Anything that stands out, I mean, what would you kind of have to say about this team and and how you would describe them heading into the playoffs? Yeah, it's funny. I think at the beginning of the year, we looked at them and we're like, they're doing everything right. The points will come. Just don't touch anything. And then they touched everything and everything kind of fell apart there. But when you look at the season as a whole, I would say they're still an average five on five team. It's not super exciting to hear, right? Um, They're better defensively at times this year. It does feel like it slipped a bit, but we know the impact of losing Ryan Lindgren should, you know, be a factor and that should stabilize when he returns. But they're an average five on five team that does need to work on their shot creation. And I think that's been magnified more so this last month. They need more shots, they need more quality chances. But the defining factors around that average five on five play is that they have elite goaltending. And even after a rough start, we've seen Chester can really pick it up. I think if we go back to March 1st, he's been in 12 games and nine out of the 12 in quality starts. And a handful of those are going to, you know, qualify as steals because he's been that much of a difference maker. So you have elite goaltending and now you have elite finishing talent. And I think it's even better than last year. Like, sure, Chris Kreider's not finishing his chances at the same degree, but you have Panarin recently taking more shots and finishing those chances. You have Tarasenko in the fold. You have the kid line that's all, you know, a year stronger, a year better. So, and then of course, someone like Mika Zibanejad at the top of your lineup. So you have elite finishing, elite goaltending, and that kind of balances the scales of the five on five play. But the bright side is the defense is a little bit better. So it's it's a team that prevents goals really well as far as the goaltending and a team that finishes the goals really well. So at the end of the day, those are kind of two of the most important categories you can talk about. But there's some stuff in between where I guess you, you could talk about some concerns. If we look at them specifically since the trade deadline, and you touched on this a little bit, 
the defensive metrics have all dipped. I know their shots allowed are up. Uh, it seems like their expected goal rates have gotten worse as far as the, the defense goes since the trade deadline. Uh, anything specific you could point to that, that you've seen from them since that those moves that they made a couple or I guess a month and a half ago now? Yeah, so obviously it was tough around the trade deadline because they had so many lineup issues. You you know, rolling with 11 forwards is never a good thing because your lines can never get into like a true rhythm unless you're outright double shifting one or two players and those are the only players you're really mixing and matching. And when you're down to five defensemen, which they were at times, that's just like even more chaos. So when you try to put those games aside, because I don't think that those are a fair judgment. And even when you go past the adjustment period of adding new players in, you just see a lack of shot creation and shot generation. So last year, this team was about 10% below league average at five on five offensive uh, expected goal creation. This year, I think they're 2% below league average. So they're a little bit better, but we're seeing the recent stretch weigh that down. Um, it feels like they're, you know, the offense isn't outweighing the defense in their minutes. And there are certain games you're just seeing them get caved in shots and chances. And when you can say, you know, like you look at the Devils matchup, right? And you see how they were hurting so much offensively. You can easily say, well, it's the regular season. The playoffs are a different animal. That's fine. But it's a question of do they have the speed? Do they have the structure? And do the coaches have the adaptability to keep changing what they need to do at five on five so they can find one, the right combinations and two, you know, make sure that they're clicking systematically. I think that's the biggest thing with this coaching staff. We can question a lot about systems and what they're doing to ensure the team is playing at the level that they should at five on five. Um, there's a lot of rush chances still. Are they going to do enough to sustain pressure offensively and just test their opponent instead of hoping that they finish the few chances that they actually create? So if you look at the last 18 games, which we've talked about because that's the time that Lindgren has been out and it also coincides with the trade deadline, it's interesting because we talk about some of the, these numbers that don't look great necessarily in the course of the last month or so, but I looked this up yesterday with Lindgren or since Lindgren first went out, he did play one game since then, but in those 18 games, they're 12, four and two. So they're still winning at a pretty high clip. Like, how do you explain that? Is it just the goaltending or is there more to it? Yeah. The Rangers apparently don't care about numbers. It's all about vibes, (laughs) but goaltending definitely has a lot to do with it. The power play is starting to find its footing again after some tweaks to figure out like what would work. And the biggest thing is you can see that they keep making the most of the chances they create. They finish their chances at such a high rate and they have been over this last stretch. So anytime, you know, you look at goals for expected goals, anything like that, the Rangers are always going to be way above it. And something like that isn't always sustainable, right? We talk about it all the time. If you're not generating the shots and chances, the goals aren't going to come consistently. And that is true. But it doesn't always factor in shooting talent, which we know the Rangers have. Is that something you want to rely on entirely? No. It's 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 just, it's a little too risky. I think you need a little bit more of a foundation below it to just get that better sustainability check. But it feels like the Rangers have the right things clicking right now to make up for their five-on-five play. Now they just need to make the tweaks to maintain what they have in net and from a finishing standpoint so there's a little bit more support behind it. It's For one thing that it makes me think of is it goes to show when you have the kind of star talent that they have that that can produce goals maybe on fewer attempts than it might take average players or other teams. Obviously, that is a strength of the Rangers right now. But it does also make you wonder that if they get into a tight playoff series against a really good defensive team, or as we've seen them have trouble with really kind of fast, swarming four-check type of teams, which it looks like they could see pretty early on in the playoffs, 
you know, you wonder, will they have spells or maybe they're not scoring at the clip that you'd like them to. The, the, the offense, it feels like it's been very hot and cold all season. They've had these games where they put up crooked numbers and then they've had other games or stretches where it feels like it, uh, nothing goes in for them. So you don't want that to happen in the playoffs for sure. And I guess that's kind of a good transition. I did want to ask you a little bit about the playoff picture. Of course, it looks like Rangers-Devils. That's what we're all anticipating. It, it could change if somehow the Devils were to leapfrog the Hurricanes for first place there. But I know you also follow the Devils pretty closely. So what do you make of that potential series? Yeah, that series is going to be really interesting. It's not that different from Pittsburgh Rangers last year. Because when we think about that series, the Rangers were the weaker five-on-five five team going into it. The Rangers were the tougher, heavier, harder-hitting team. That almost burned them in the playoffs. They were very lucky that Sidney Crosby was out and that they pulled it together when they needed to in game six and seven. But in the games prior to that, they were the worst team of five on five. And you have to question if it's sustainable enough to to focus on hitting and get away from your game as much because after that series, the Rangers started changing things. They got better at five on five. That Kane series was a team I don't think anyone expected to see come out for the Rangers. So with the Devils, you have this team that is so based off the rush. They are elite in transition. That is how they do the most damage. They're better off the cycle than they were last year, but they're still not, you know, they're only slightly above average. Can you go with that style of playing to the playoffs? That's a question everybody should be asking. And it's easy to look to the Florida Panthers last year and say, you can't. But the Panthers, I think, are a different situation because you have a team that got slower at the deadline, which the Devils didn't do. They got the best player on the market in Timo Meyer. And... The Panthers got away from their game. Yes, the Capitals stood them up in round one and the same with the Lightning in round two, but they just weren't trying to play it. They were trying to slow down their game. So if the Devils are going to stick to their strengths, which I think they need to do to be the most successful, the Rangers are probably going to try to out-hit them and try to slow it out, slow it down and grind it out. If the Devils are patient, they can just wear them down, skate circles around them, and they'll be fine. The Devils panic, and there's a chance that they might. This is a very inexperienced team in the playoffs, and if they try to change their game to that heavy hockey style that they think they need to have in the playoffs, then I think they're in trouble and the Rangers can really you know, push back and beat them. So it's going to make for an interesting matchup. The key for me is going to be goaltending, which every series it comes down to goaltending, right? But you have Shesterkin against Vanacek. You have an average goalie in Vanacek who's been better than expected this year and doesn't get tested often, but we also see his workload weighing on him, similar to Shesterkin last year because he's not accustomed to the workload. And then the other part of it's going to be the Devils' power play versus the Rangers' penalty kill. The Devils' power play is not great, even though they have the talent. They have to figure out what works best, but that's kind of like the confidence booster for players like Heeshear and Hughes and Meyer. And I think we're going to see that similarity of Florida. If the power play is not clicking, that's going to, you know, put some doubt into those high offensive players at even strength. And I think then they might struggle to play to their strengths of that rush game and they might panic a bit. So if the Rangers just keep killing off the penalties they take and try to have more of a power kill, then I think that they're in really good shape in that series. The experience thing is going to be interesting because you always wonder how a team's going to react. The Rangers were the inexperienced team last year, and they had moments where it looked like maybe they were a bit overwhelmed, but overall, they responded really well and obviously went on that run. The goaltending, like you said, I mean, to me, that's probably the biggest X factor for them and the biggest advantage that the Rangers have. The other thing that I keep thinking of is is you talk about how good the Devils are in transition and off the rush. The Rangers have had issues with turnovers, especially through the neutral zone this year. So I think it's going to be really interesting to to watch their puck management. Can they cut down on those turnovers? Can they protect the puck and not fuel the Devils in transition? But can they do that without, 
I guess for lack of a better term, kind of neutering themselves and taking away from some of the skill and the talent that they have and the playmaking ability that they have. They need to make those plays to score the goals and prevent the droughts that we're talking about, but they also don't want to be coughing up pucks in situations where all of a sudden the devils are off and running going the other way. I, I guess I would assume based on what you're saying, you kind of feel the same way. Yeah. Like you have to, it's all about risk management, but how do you have risk management without taking away your own spark? And that's going to be like the biggest question for the Rangers of all. Like if they try to slow it down, try to play too careful, they're not going to have the offensive chances they should have. And I think with a goaltender like Vanacek, if they can just keep pressuring him, that they, they'll be able to take advantage. They Like we keep talking about, they have the finishing talent. They have the experience. It's just a matter of creating those chances. And they know that they have Chester behind them, that if they make the mistakes, you know, he's their insurance. He's the goalie. I think almost any team going into the playoffs would want to have on their team. It's him, Vasilevsky and Sorokin, I think are the three. Everybody would say they'd want any day of the week in the playoffs. So they have to kind of know their strengths and know what they have to do. And man, you know, obviously the neutral zone is going to be huge and it's going to be, you know, interesting to see what kind of notes they take from the teams that have slowed down rush based teams with their neutral zone play. And, you know, do they look to someone like the Capitals last year and the Lightning, the year, you know, the same last year and go, how do they do that? Or do they look to a team like Vegas two years ago that slowed down Colorado and take notes from that? That would be the most interesting comparable because obviously it wasn't Gallant's team at the time in Vegas, but it was the foundation he initially put in there. So I'm curious if they can figure out a way to slow down the neutral zone while still being a really good rush team themselves, the Rangers. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Last thing I'll ask you, I'm not necessarily asking for a prediction unless you want to go there, but just sizing up the whole playoff race. Obviously the Eastern conference looks stacked. You know, I don't know if you have a favorite, are you on the Boston train? Do you feel like it's going to be hard for anybody to beat them? Or do you look at it kind of as more of a wide open tournament? Like, like where do you stand on some of your favorite teams going into it? Boston's such an interesting one because they prepared themselves, it feels like, for the playoffs with so many additions that they shouldn't be the lightning that lost to the Blue Jackets, which is always the risk of having that incredible regular season. But for me, like, I do look at the Western Conference a bit, and it's not so much the the Golden Knights, but LA has been one of the best teams since the deadline. Like, what can they do? And Minnesota has been incredible. They really have, they've been clicking on all cylinders and then they're doing that without Kaprizov. So how does that change? And I never count out the avalanche. So I wonder how much the Eastern conference is going to just the wear and tear of going through each other is going to hurt them and how much a Western team can take advantage of that. Because I think even with the wild card race in the West, it's going to be the jets falling their way into it or the flames is that second seed. Like that doesn't seem like a tough series for whoever's going to take them on versus the East. I think the Islanders are, despite what, you know, like the second we have faith in them, all of a sudden they get bad again. The last couple of games haven't been their best, but they're a team that's hard to play in the playoffs and they have one of the best goalies. So it's, I think it's just so much tougher in the East that we're going to see a lot of long series, hopefully a lot of action, a lot of drama. That's what we all want. And in the West, I'm curious how the the strength of the lower teams, you know, helps the the, you know, stronger teams like make it through a little bit more unscathed. So you so you wouldn't be shocked, it sounds like, if the East beat the crap out of each other and then by the time they get to the Stanley Cup playoffs or Stanley Cup final, that whichever team comes out of the West might have an advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, look, I could be totally wrong. It could be a team that just battles their way through the East that by the time they get to the Stanley Cup final, they're like, this is nothing. We've got this. That can absolutely happen. But it just feels like we're underestimating some of the Western Conference teams because we're going, well, if they were in the East, their point totals would land them here. Yeah, yeah. I do 
I do think, I mean, for me, Boston is obviously the favorite. That's not like breaking any news, but I do think that the Rangers path, while it will be tough, the Devils and the Hurricanes are both difficult matchups for them because of the speed and all the stuff that we talked about. I do think it's a little more favorable, especially when you consider the injuries that Carolina has right now and the and the inexperience of the Devils. I do think you can see a path for them to get to the conference final again. To me, those top three teams in the Atlantic, Boston, Tampa, and I know people laugh when you say Toronto, but I do think they're a really good team. I, I feel like those are maybe top to bottom, you know, a little more quality overall than what you see in, in the top three in the Metro. And so I, I can see a path for the Rangers to get back to the conference final. Then it's a matter of, you know, can you beat whichever team, whether it's Boston or whoever, uh, but it all shapes up to be really interesting. Like, I don't think there's any easy matchups. Gerard Gallant says that all the time, but I don't think that there's any easy matchup for them in the first round outside of, I don't know, maybe if, Pittsburgh snuck in, but they're not playing them. So that doesn't matter anyway. Yeah, no, I fully agree with you because it feels like with the Devils, it's like we know what their their huge strength is, right? And that's something that easily could beat the Rangers. But if they get past it, it's like, okay, check. You beat the rush base team. If you get past the Kings, it's like, check. You beat the really good forward checking team. That's the product of their system. And we know the Rangers match up well to them. And even though it's a different team than last year, the Hurricanes identity is so strong that they can have that scouted. They can have that, you know, mastered by this point. And then you get to... Tampa, you have a team that's amazing off the rush and amazing off the cycle and can grind down low. You have Boston who can literally do it all. I don't think their penalty kill is getting enough attention, which has been like absolutely elite. And then you have the Leafs who, yes, the punching bag of everybody rightfully so, but at their best, especially if Sam Sonoff is playing well and their goaltending is healthy enough, that's a legitimately good team too. So, and there, it feels like getting through round one, getting through round two, it could be like, okay, this dimension check, this dimension check. You get to the Atlantic teams and it's like, now this is a team that can do it all, no matter who you face. So it's a completely different challenge. You get past that, that's huge, but that's a big ass too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, Shane, I know you got to run. I really, really appreciate the time. We'll do this again sometime down the line. And thank you, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Welcome back, and thanks to Shana for taking a little time to chat with us on this Tuesday. It sounds to me like Shana might like a team from the West to surprise everybody and upset whichever team comes out of the East. We will wait and see. I think there is this opinion out there that the East team is going to be so battered that the West will have an advantage in that department, but you never know how these playoffs are going to turn out. It it could be the case that whichever team comes out of the West ends up playing seven games in the conference final or playing a lot of games in the previous rounds and is pretty worn down as well. I definitely think top to bottom, the East is the much stronger conference, and I think that Boston, deservedly so, is the favorite in the whole thing. But, yeah, there are some threats out west for me, as I've told you guys before, headlined by Colorado. They, to me, loom as a team that could very easily repeat, especially if everybody's healthy and they're clicking the way that we know that they can click. But Shana touched on a couple of the other teams that are playing well out there. Vegas, L.A., Minnesota. There definitely are some threats. I just think, as I touched on, to me, the Atlantic teams feel really good, at least especially those top three. 
And you look at the Metro, which has been a meat grinder all year, and, and any of those teams could go on a run as well. So we will see. We're only two weeks away, less than that now at the time of this recording. So pretty soon we get those answers, and that's going to be the really fun part. All right. Let's get into this week's questions. And the first one comes from Jason J. Colby, who wrote, I think the line combos are right where they need to be. Kane with Mika and Krides, Tarasenko with Troach and Bread, the kids, and what is a very good fourth line. The two best playmakers with the two best snipers. What are the chances Turk leaves it be for the next five games and lets them gel? So, Jason, I definitely think there's a chance that he leaves them beat in these last five games, but he made a comment today that I'm going to read to you right now. I could probably even play the clip, but I'll read it because I transcribed it all already. When asked about what might happen in these last five games and the top six in particular, he said, quote, during the game, if we don't like it and we want to get something different, we'll change it up a little bit. It's not like it's going to shock our guys. They've played with every line combination they could, so I'm not worried about that, end quote. Basically, he's bracing you for the possibility that if he doesn't like what he sees, he reserves the right to make changes again. We thought for a long time, for I think it was 10 straight games, that those line combinations that he had previously, which had Panarin and Tarasenko on the top line with Zabanajad, and then had Kreider and Kane playing with Trocek, we thought that that was going to be what it looked like going into the playoffs because he stuck with it for multiple weeks in a row and didn't touch it. But that game in Buffalo that we referenced earlier in the show where he was very disappointed with the team, he decided to make changes then. And then for the most part, those lines looked really good Sunday in Washington. I thought, we talked about the kids already, but I thought the Panarin, Trocek, Tarasenko line was really good in that game. And that line, to your point, Jason, it makes a lot of sense because Tarasenko being on the opposite wing of Panarin gives Panarin a shooter. And we know, we've talked about this at length before, the kind of player that Panarin is where he's always passed first and he can find guys in all kinds of spots and make those touch passes that few guys around the world can make. Having a guy with the kind of shot that Tarasenko has feels like the right compliment for him. And on top of that, Panarin, as much as we talked earlier in the season about it not working with Trocek, it's worked really well between the two of them in the second half of the season. They look much more comfortable with each other. I actually sat with Panarin after practice on Tuesday, and that was one of the things that I asked him about. He said their feel for each other seems to get better and better each game. I mean, I guess that should have been expected. We all wanted it to click right away. We've seen that happen pretty much in the past with Panarin and Strom and the way that they seem to hit it off right off the bat. But a lot of times it doesn't happen that quickly, and we see them continue to work at it, and now it looks like that is the right spot for Panarin to be. If you look at the underlying numbers, his stats when playing with Mika 
are worse than when he's playing with Trocek. Him and Trocek, I think their expected goals percentage is like 54, where it's sub-50 when he plays with Zabanajad. So it looks like Panarin meshes pretty well with Trocek. Trocek, you got to give him credit. He's had a really strong second half now that he's fully adjusted and looks like he's comfortable in his new surroundings. And again, Tarasenko on the wing makes a lot of sense to me because of his shooting ability and what I think is sort of underrated, something that I've been picking up a lot in games when I've been watching him in the last couple weeks. This dude is sneaky strong. You you see it when he's walking around the locker room. He's pretty jacked. He's a physically fit guy. But you also see it on the ice with the way that he throws his body around. I did not know that he had that in his game. Gerard Glant specifically talked about the work that he does along the boards. And you've seen him take pucks away from guys and get that line, or whichever line he's playing on, possession back. I've also seen some back checks from him and some defensive work. He's not a defensive stalwart by any stretch of the imagination, but he's working hard. He's hustling. And and that's really all you can ask from a guy of that caliber who was brought here because he can score goals and, and do all that kind of stuff. But when you see him playing hard on the other end and engaging physically and using that strength that he has to his advantage, that's an added bonus. So again, that line looks good. It seems like the Zabanajad line has not been as surefire recently. And he's been still putting up his points, no doubt about it. He's on pace to have his best season points-wise. And Mika, to me, is still the most well-rounded, most complete forward on this roster. But it didn't jump out to you when he played with Kreider and Kane the other day in the same way that it did with that Trocheck line. Now it's only one game plus the little bit of time they had together in Buffalo. So way too early to jump to any conclusions on that. And we know that Zabanajad and Kreider have a long track record together. And Gerard Glant has mentioned that multiple times that it's always in the back of the mind that he'd ideally like to have those guys together. But if that's going to be your top line, and that's going to be the group that gets thrown out there against the top line for the other teams and is going to have some tough defensive assignments a lot of the times, which we know isn't exactly Patrick Kane's strength, you would definitely like to see some signs of progress in the next five games. Chris Kreider at 5-on-5 in particular has been pretty quiet recently, and so that is a line I'm going to have my eye on in the next few games because If you feel good about the Trocheck line, that's great. You obviously feel really good about the kids, and the fourth line has been bringing their lunch pail and doing their job on most nights. The top line, which, you know, is going to be looking at playing against whether it's Jack Hughes or whether it's Sebastian Ajo, some of the better centers in the league with some of the teams that it looks like they could end up facing, you're going to want that line to feel like not only are they getting thrown out there in tough defensive assignments, but they're forcing the other team to have to play a lot of defense as well. And right now, recently, it doesn't feel like Mika's line has been doing enough of that. And so that's something that you'd like to see materialize more in the next handful of games. If they decide that that doesn't work, what is the alternative? That's an interesting question. Because if you like the way the Panarin, Trocek, and Tarasenko look together, and you definitely don't want to break up the kid line because of how good they've been, 
you really don't have any other options. So it's almost like that line kind of has to work right now. But going back to what Gerard Gallant said after practice today, I do think that it should come as a surprise to no one if we see him tinker and try different things. So he's got limited time to do it. In an ideal world, these lines would stay the same for the next five games and they'd all look good and they'd roll right into the playoffs. But if you're having doubts, the time to look at other stuff is very limited right now. So it's it's not a great situation. It would be much better if you felt really good about those lines. Like if you think back to last trade deadline, the Rangers settled on their lines with Andrew Kopp playing with Panarin and Strom and Frank Vetrano playing on the top line with Kreider and Zibanejad. They settled on those pretty quickly, and they rolled them all the way into the playoffs. It felt like for a month or two, those were the lines that we saw, and they built some continuity going into the playoffs. It doesn't have that same feel right now. The upside feels higher because of the talent that the Rangers have assembled, but you don't look at it and say, absolutely, we've seen enough from these guys to know that these are the lines that work best. It's still kind of a question mark with only five games to go. As Jason said, this seems and feels like the right decision right now, but you can't say it definitively because you haven't seen enough of it yet. So we'll see how the next five games play out. All right, let's get to our next question, which comes from Bobby Too Slow. Bobby writes, why do Zabanajad and Kreider need to be on the PK? Sure, if the Rangers desperately need a shorthanded goal, do it in spots. But Goudreau, Mott, and VC are all very good at it. Then maybe use Trocheck or get Kako practiced on the PK since he's not on the power play. Seems like a lot of unnecessary wear and tear on Zabanajad and Kreider. So Bobby, I think in these next five games, I absolutely agree with you that they should be scaling back on the PK minutes for those guys. I wrote this on Monday, but the absolute last thing that you want to see right now, if you're a Rangers coach or a member of the organization or a fan is Mika Zibanejad jumping in front of a one-timer on a PK. That is not what you want to see flash before your eyes with the playoffs so close. So I do think that Zibanejad and Kreider should get a reduction in their PK usage in the next five games. Throw Adam Fox in there as well. I would not be using him very much in those situations in these next handful of games. But once the playoffs start, then there's no holding back. And Kreider and Mika together on the PK more than any other PK duo that I've seen with the Rangers in recent memory. It seems like every time they go out there for one of those shifts, there's a shorthanded goal waiting to happen. They not only create turnovers, Mika's so good with his stick and so good with clogging up passing lanes or picking guys pockets. And as soon as they get the puck, whereas a lot of guys will look to just dump it in a penalty kill situation they're looking to go, and they're looking to make a play. And they're really, really good at it. We, we've seen, I don't know exactly what the number is off the top of my head, but we, I know we've seen a handful of, of PK shorthanded goals for them this season and in previous seasons. So that's a weapon that you have to utilize in a playoff setting. A lot of times you're going to see those two be the first guys over the boards on a penalty kill. 
They seem to be Gerard Glant's preferred option. And what he's been going with as the other go-to duo has generally been Goudreau and VC. He seems to really like using those guys in penalty kill situations as well. And then your third unit, it seems like, will probably be Mott and Trocek, although they won't play quite as much. Now, if any of those guys are winded or coming off of a long shift or, or are in the penalty box themselves, then I think you can easily move one of those guys up. To your point, Mott is very good on the PK, and I think probably in some ways and on many teams would deserve to be one of your top four forwards on the penalty kill. But I can't see a justification for not using Zabanajad and Kreider in a playoff setting. Once you get to the playoffs, there's no holding back. You got to put your best guys out there. And if you have an opportunity to turn a penalty kill situation into a goal, that is as much of a momentum shifter as you can possibly have in a game. And you have to try to take advantage of those opportunities when you can. So I absolutely think that the Rangers will be using those guys often on the PK once the playoffs begin. And I absolutely think that they should be using those guys. Again, regular season, these last five games, I'm with you. To me, I think they've been using them a little too much in these last couple weeks, and you would hope to see them maybe reduce that in these last five games, but no training wheels in the playoffs. That's time to put your big boys out there, and those are their big boys for sure. All right, let's move on to the final question, which comes from Alexa Amato, who wrote, what would the Rangers need to do in the playoffs for the season to be viewed as a success, to what extent could they continue to replicate this success next season? Alexa, it's an interesting question because the bar has certainly been raised with the trades that the Rangers made at this year's deadline, bringing in Kane and Tarasenko in particular, and also because of the run that they went on last year. This is a team that expects to compete for a Stanley Cup. Now, can I sit here and say that anything short of a Stanley Cup victory is a disappointment? That's hard for me to say. I, I think that's an impossible, or not impossible, but that is a tall order for any team, especially when you look around the league and you see how many teams are probably feeling the same way. So it can't be looked at necessarily as Stanley Cup or bust, but... If the Rangers don't at least make it back to the conference final, which is where they went last year, that would certainly seem like a step in the wrong direction, especially when you consider that in the first two rounds, they're potentially looking at the New Jersey Devils, who are a very talented team, but as we talked about with Shayna, a very inexperienced team that the Rangers are going to have a clear advantage in goaltending against. So, they have to be the favorites in that series. And then if they play Carolina in the second round, they beat Carolina last year, and Carolina is missing two of their best offensive weapons in Max Pacioretty and Andrei Svechnikov on top of also not having Vincent Trocek anymore, who is now playing for the Rangers. So they would also, even though Carolina looks like they're probably going to win the division, the Rangers would also have to be viewed as the favorite in that series, and not winning that series would be a disappointment. So based on those matchups and based on how far the Rangers went last year, I would think that anything short of the conference final would be viewed as a disappointment. But if they got to the conference final and they had to play Boston, 
I don't know how you can look at losing to a team that has been as good and complete and just like a locomotive all season that pretty much nobody can stop as the Bruins have been. Losing to a team like that in a conference final setting, it would be hard for me to look at that and say, wow, they really disappointed. That's a huge knock against the Rangers. Now, if they go out with a whimper, if they get swept, if it looks really ugly, that's a different conversation. But if they're competitive in that series, they give Boston a good run for their money, I think you can probably walk away with your head held high. So that's kind of, I think, where I would draw the line. If they can get to the conference final, then you feel pretty good about it. Of course, they want to go further than that. They put a lot of eggs into the basket of trying to go as far as they possibly can this season with the trades that they made and guys like Kane and Tarasenko being very unlikely to stay on the roster for next season. So they're going for it right now, no doubt about it. But, you know, given Boston looming, or even if it's Tampa, or even if it's Toronto, I mean, I think Toronto I would rank third as far as the teams that you fear the most that you could potentially see in the conference final. But would the Rangers be the favorite against Tampa? That would feel like kind of a toss-up, and Tampa just beat them last year, and Tampa has a long track record of success. So, again, context matters when you're having this conversation, and we're not going to have the full context until we see how the playoffs play out. But... My general point of view going into the playoffs is the Rangers, given everything that we know about them, the recent history, the playoff run last year, the trade deadline additions, the talent that they've assembled, if this Rangers team doesn't at least make it to the conference final on face value, that probably ends up maybe having some ripple effects and maybe making them consider some changes, whether it's coaching or whether it's personnel or what have you. I think if they at least make it to the conference final, you walk away feeling like, okay, it was another really good season, another season where we're building towards something that we hope is eventually going to become a Stanley Cup contender. And I know, Alexa, you mentioned next season. Well, this is a conversation we had last year, and it's a conversation we'll have again this offseason, especially if the Rangers don't win at all. They got a lot of young guys who are still growing up and getting better and getting older and their future hopes hinge on a lot of those guys. So it's not like if they don't win this year, you feel like the window's closed and they're not going to be a Stanley Cup contender next year once again. But again, I'm going to say this over and over again. They're clearly going for it right now. You don't trade for Patrick Kane and Vladimir Tarasenko at the same tread deadline if you're not absolutely all in going for it right now. So they could win a Stanley Cup. They might win a Stanley Cup. They probably have the roster that's capable of doing it, but there are other teams out there that feel the same way. So to me, that line that I'm drawing, I think initially is going to be the conference final. But again, we'll see what happens. There's going to be a lot more to dissect and talk about based on how these playoffs play out. All right. With that, we are going to end this week's episode. A quick heads up for everybody this coming weekend. I know I just took some time off because of my grandfather's funeral and all that, but I will also be away this weekend. This is going to be my last weekend of freedom until the playoffs are over. But 
absolutely no way I couldn't go for this. My best friend is getting married in Texas on Saturday. I'm the best man in the wedding. So it would have been a really lame move on my part to no-show for that one. And with the Rangers being clinched and in the comfortable position that they're in, it kind of works out. So I will not be with the team in St. Louis or in Columbus. I'm going to cover the Wednesday night game against Tampa, and then I'm flying out to Texas on Thursday, which also happens to be my son's second birthday. So a lot of stuff going on in the next few days. But we will be back next week. I will be back from Texas on Easter Sunday. And then it's full bore. I'm not planning on taking any days off until the playoffs are over from that point forward. And, of course, we're going to be fully immersed in it for however far the Rangers take us. We'll have to wait and see what that could be. Is it going to be a few weeks or is it going to be a few months? Nobody knows. Last thing, once again, thank you to Ian O'Neill for submitting the opening track that you heard and that you're about to hear again. The talent from you guys is just so impressive. I mean, I couldn't do this kind of stuff. I love music. I listen to music all the time. I was in a college band, but I I don't have the wherewithal to, to put together this stuff, especially it seems like really easily and quickly a lot of you guys do this stuff. So really appreciative for that and definitely appreciate you, Ian, for submitting this week's track. I will be back next week with another track and another guest and another episode. But until then, stay safe, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your week, and I will talk to you soon. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.